Good to see everyone this morning, especially those of you who are guests with us today, if you are a guest, and I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Bill, and we always love it when um, new folks uh, come to our services each and every week, and so if you are brand new with us today, or maybe it's your second time or third time and you haven't done so yet, um, we would love to connect with you, and the easiest way to do that is to text the word WELCOME. Uh, to 817-755-1668. You'll receive back from us a digital connection card, which asks for some real simple information. We're not going to show up at your house or anything like that. It's just a, a, a process to build a relationship with you um, so that we can find out how we can minister to you and uh, your family as best as we possibly can. Now, if you're old school and you're like, hey, I don't want to mess with digital stuff, we have um, some hard copies at the Connection Center. Um, and so you can stop by there on your way out this morning, and we'll kind of give you the ask for the same information and do the same thing. So it's not any different in terms of process. It's just what you, what you want to do. If you'd rather not mess with it, um, you know, on your phone or whatever, we do have hard copies. Now, hopefully, all of you on your way in this morning received one of these cards. We've been doing this for the last few weeks now. Um, and haven't said anything about it, so I thought I would tell you about these, because some of you probably think it's propaganda and you're going to avoid that at all costs. Don't do that. Every Sunday, we're going to do this like all the time now, right? As opposed to like the traditional bulletin that has a thousand things in it and you're not really sure what's important. This is like the thing that tells you the one thing that we want you to know in a given week. So don't avoid it, but see what that one thing is. Um, and this week, our one thing is talking about formed. And so, Melissa, at the end of the service, she's going to talk more about that. Um, but it's especially for new people, or if you haven't done, uh, been through formed yet, it's for four Wednesday, four Wednesday, four weeks on Wednesday night. That's really what I was trying to say. Um, here's the deal, especially for those of you who are new, because I know we have lots of new people. We want you to move outside of the rows of Sunday morning and find a circle. That can sometimes be intimidating. And so formed on Wednesday nights and then our growth groups that follow that, so we have different studies that happen on Wednesdays, can sometimes be a great like one foot into that circle because um, it's only four weeks. So that's like the commitment. You show up four times and then you don't ever have to show up again if it's the worst thing that you've ever experienced in your entire life. I believe that it will not be the worst experience you've ever had in your entire life and maybe you want to stick with it or take that next step and find what we refer to as our community groups, which meet in homes and things like that. We want you to find a circle, a place where you're connected with other people. We've talked about the importance of that in the last couple of weeks, finding those people to encourage us as we seek to see our faith come alive. We need those people to come around us. So form can kind of be a great like first step into that process. And so if you are new, um, I would encourage you to pay attention to what Melissa has to say afterwards and get signed up and all that kind of stuff. And if you do have questions about anything about the church, anything you hear in the message this morning, um, I will be available after the service. I'll kind of make my way over to the connection area um, and, and we'll hang out over there. Again, would love to answer any questions about anything about the church, any question you have at all, nothing is off the table, um, would be, be glad to do that. We are continuing this morning our message series that we started last week called This I Know. If you were with us last week, I began the message by talking about a song that was like one of the first songs that I learned as a kid growing up in church. And I talked about how I was convinced from the time that I was at least two years old of God's love for me. The reason being is because we sang the song, Jesus Loves Me, every single week. So I knew God's love for me. 
This morning, I'm going to share another song as we get started in today's message, but the song I'm going to talk about today is also one that I learned as a kid, even though it is not one that I learned in our children's program going up. This is a song that I learned in what is sometimes referred to as Big Church. Things as a kid for me growing up in church were very different than things are now for our kids. And I know we've got our fourth and fifth graders who are in the room this morning, and you're thinking, like, this is the worst thing ever in the history of the world. So yes, I'm going to tell you an old man story about how I had to walk to school uphill both ways in the snow every single day. Okay, So when I was a kid, we did not have a children's program that ran concurrently to the adult service. So we had Sunday school, even adults had to go to Sunday school, and then we had Again, what's sometimes referred to as big church, the adult service. Sometimes when I was a kid, we had what we then referred to as children's church, but children's church didn't start till after the music portion, so I sat through a lot of the music portion of the service for many, many years growing up. But then because we went to church on Sunday nights and there was never a kid's program for that, I sat through a lot of adult services when I was a kid. So those of you who are kids and you're like, you're in the fourth and fifth grade and you're just now coming in here maybe for the very first time, listen, I have no sympathy for you at all. And none of them are paying attention to me, which is fine. Because the reality was when I was a kid sitting in service, I had to come up with all kinds of things to occupy my time to try to you know, not be noisy and rambunctious and all the things that little kids do in service. And so I would do things like count the light bulbs in the chandeliers. Or sometimes count the light bulbs that were out in the chandeliers. Our auditorium was, was really traditional, so it had wood beams with wood slats. It kind of almost looked like a train track, and so I would imagine trains going across the ceiling in the middle of the service. I mean, you do all kinds of things to occupy your time so that you didn't get in trouble, which happened to me a lot as a kid growing up in church. I would get in trouble a lot. But having said all of that, because I was in the adult service, there were some songs that we did that had a significant influence on the development of my faith even as a kid. One of them said these words, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. And I think it's that line that is so significant. It's because he first loved me. Like when I was lost in my sin, Jesus reached down into my life and rescued me. He loved me first. When I could do nothing, he came and rescued me. He loved me first. Why do we forget that? If you've been a Christian for a long time, a number of years, it's really easy to kind of fall into the trap of thinking, like, it makes sense that God loves someone like me talked about that a little bit last week. Somebody from my background growing up in church, we can kind of think, well, it makes sense that God would love someone like me. But this isn't just for someone who has a background like mine where you grew up in church, because even if you came to faith in Christ as an adult over the years, sometimes you can fall into the trap of thinking like, this makes sense. Because look at all of the things that I'm doing, serving in church, maybe doing different things and doing all the right things. Like it makes sense for God to love someone like me. And all of a sudden, we begin to have this view of God's love for us as being based on our performance. 
Right? It makes sense because of all of the things that I'm doing that God would love someone like me. But then on the other hand, kind of the flip side of that is in the midst of the struggles that we face in life, maybe we begin to doubt God's love because we look at the circumstances of our lives or maybe even sometimes the things that we're doing and we think, well, there's no way that God loves someone like me. He can't love someone like me because look at all of the things that I'm doing or the things that I'm not doing. But it's because he first loved me. When we could do nothing, God reached down into our lives and rescued us. And so the love that God has for us, it is not based on what we did. It is not based on what we would do. But his love is extended to us in spite of who we were. And that truth is transformative. In terms of how we think about our own relationship with God and the security that we have, because it's not based on our performance, But then at the same time as we begin to understand that unconditional nature of God's love for us, it also changes how we view other people. So I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. God's love for us is not based on what we did or what we would do, but he extends his love to us in spite of who we were. If you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to the passage that we're looking at this morning, John chapter 4. We're going to look really briefly at John chapter 4, verses 39 through 42. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen as I read it here in just a second. Or uh, if you have the Bible app on your phone, you can navigate your way to our live event and follow along there. But we're going to jump in to the tail end of a story where Jesus ministered to a village in the region of Samaria. And what Jesus did that day was incredible. No rabbi would do what Jesus did, but yet he did it. And what he did that day in this event that we're going to look at, it helps us to understand that God loves us, again, not because of what we did nor what we would do, but in spite of who we were. Let me read this section, John chapter 4, starting in verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. You can tell we're jumping in at the end of this visit to this Samaritan village because it says in verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed because of what the woman said. And that alone should really challenge us, those of us who are followers of Jesus, to think about sharing our stories with other people, sharing what God has done for us because it can be used by God to bring somebody else to faith in Christ. And we could spend the entire message talking about that, but that's not our purpose today because our purpose is talking about the love that God extends to us in spite of who we were. There's so much in this passage that I think leads us to that understanding, but it begins with the story of this woman. This woman who shared her story that brought many villagers in her town to faith in Jesus is known as the Samaritan woman at the well. Her story begins John chapter 4. It's at the beginning of John chapter 4 that we read Jesus said to his disciples, we have to go through Samaria. 
This is highly significant. As a reader, it helps us to understand that something is getting ready to happen, even if we're not exactly sure what that is. See, understand, Samaria is a region in the middle of two Jewish regions in the area of Israel, Galilee in the north and Judea in the south, Samaria right in the middle. And when a Jew would travel from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north or vice versa, typically they would not go through Samaria. We'll talk about why that is a little bit later. But Jesus said to the disciples, we have to go through Samaria. If we were to read through that section, we would find that they reached the town of Sychar, in this, this Samaritan village around noon, Jesus sent the disciples into the city to go find lunch, and he sat down at the well. After a few minutes, a woman from the village made her way out to the well. It was noon. If you don't know anything about the culture, you just think that's a, a random detail. It's included for some reason, but you're not really sure why. If you know anything about the culture, you know that it is highly significant. Because no one went to draw water at noon. You would either go get water in the morning or in the evening when it was a little bit cooler. You would never go at noon during the heat of the day. The reason being, it's hot. So do you know what you do in the heat of the day? As little as possible, because it is hot. So she is going to the well at a time that is highly unusual, and she's going alone. No women ever went outside of the city alone. Alone you were vulnerable. There was safety in numbers. And so as this woman went outside the city to get some water, she saw Jesus sitting there. We wonder if what was going through her mind. Did she think maybe something bad was going to happen to her? Was she afraid that something was going to happen to her? Did she think, I wonder who that is that's sitting there, what kind of person that is that's sitting there? But as she approached the well, Jesus asked her for a drink. She said, how is it that you, being a Jew, can ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? She knew that that would make Jesus unclean, ceremonially unclean, which meant that he had to jump through a whole bunch of hoops to be able to worship in the temple again. If you'd have known who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked me for a drink because the water that I can give to you can spring up in your life. It's living water and you'll never thirst again. And she said, man, that sounds incredible. Where do I get that water? I'd love to have that. Go get your husband. But I don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five husbands and the man that you're living with now is not your husband. Now, the traditional understanding of her life situation was that she was divorced that many times. She was an immoral woman who was divorced that many times and now was, I'll say it this way, shacking up with someone who was not her husband. It's entirely possible that that were the case. I, if you really to push me on it, I don't really think that that was her life situation. I think she was widowed that many times. Now, I want you to think about this. In the world of the first century, women were dependent, almost completely dependent upon men for just to meet their needs, for their safety, for their well-being, all of that kind of stuff. And so it was highly important that a woman be married. That way, she has someone who's going to take care of her. 
So if, you, if your husband dies, that's really bad. That's why, in, according to the Old Testament law, there was kind of this practice of a family member coming to marry the widow. So it was a family member of the deceased that would marry the widow to make sure that she was cared for. Okay, so it's a really bad thing. It's a bad thing when your husband dies first. It's obviously a really bad thing if your second husband dies. If it happens a third time, now all of a sudden there's a reason for it. And it's not because you're unlucky that that happens. It's your fault because you are cursed. And so now finding somebody who makes sure that you're taken care of is really highly unlikely. Now, in the case of this woman, she found somebody who had enough pity on her to take her into his home. He would use her and abuse her, likely, without any level of commitment. He wouldn't marry her because he didn't want to be next on the list. So understand this. When she walked out to the well that day, she was the plague of death. No one wanted anything to do with her, isolated, alone, and broken. But Jesus noticed her. He talked to her. And she said, I can see that you're a prophet. A lot of Bible scholars will tell you she tried to deflect the conversation because she didn't want to talk about her sinfulness. And again, if we believe that she was a widow... That wasn't the point at all. I think the reality was she wanted to have a relationship with God and wanted to figure out why. Genuinely had a question. She recognized Jesus as some sort of a spiritual leader and said, listen, I've always had this question. I want to know this. Where are we supposed to worship? Because we Samaritans worship here on Mount Gerizim. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. So tell me, where are we supposed to worship God? And the response that she got that day changed her life. Jesus said to her, there's coming a day, and it's here right now, where the place doesn't matter anymore. Because the Father is looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And when he said that, he was saying to her, and the Father is looking for you. He wants people like you. He was saying to this woman who was isolated and alone, and in the midst of her brokenness, he was saying, he loves you, he wants you. And overwhelmed with what she heard, she said, listen, I don't know who you are. Only the Messiah is supposed to say things like that. And I'm sure Jesus, with a little bit of a smile, said, I know, because that's me. In that instant, her life was changed because she heard the words, God loves you. And it's so important for us to understand that as we think about the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, her story is our story. If you grew up in church, like I did, attending services every week, her story is our story. Even if you didn't grow up in church and had no religious background at all, understand this, her story is our story. Because when we could do nothing, God extended his love to us, rescuing us, communicating his love for us. He loved us first. And it's that message that can change our lives.
But don't just think, man, maybe that's just a one-off. Right? Like she was just at the right place at the right time. Jesus, because of who he was, he had to do this. He had to extend grace and mercy to her. He had to extend love to her because that's what he did. But her story's not really universally applicable to all people. But I want you to know her story is not a one-off. Because Jesus didn't just minister to that woman at the well. But he then went and ministered to an entire village of people and saw their lives change too. So now let's talk about the Samaritans. In the Old Testament, we read about the fall of Israel to the Assyrian Empire. So the Assyrians were the world empire at the time. They were a war machine going around taking over all kinds of different city-states, regions, countries, whatever it was. And Israel was on their list. Throughout the period of the kings, so during the time that Israel had a king, which is really not too dissimilar than the rest of the Old Testament, we see times where the people followed after God, and God was gracious to them, and they lived well in the land of Israel, God's blessing upon them. We also read other times where they followed after other gods. In fact, all of the kings, you go back through and read like in First and Second Kings, when the kings are introduced to us, it's either they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and that assessment was based on did they help the people to worship God, or did they encourage the people to worship false gods? During that time, God would raise up prophets to warn the people, to point them back to God, warn them that God's judgment was going to come at some point if they continue to worship other gods. And so after a long period of time where God was gracious to his people, willing to forgive, at some point he got to the point where, like any good parent has to do, he had to discipline his children. They had to suffer the consequences of their sins so that they would understand how bad things were. So as a result of that, God withdrew his hand of blessing and protection on the people of Israel, and the Assyrians took over. Now, when the Assyrians would take over, this was true in Israel, other regions as well, they would remove and resettle the people in various parts of the empire. The reason they did that is they felt like there was less of a chance of a revolution if you were living in a foreign land than you would be if you were living in your homeland. Right? It makes sense. You're going to fight for your home, but you're not necessarily willing to fight for somebody else's home. And so they would do that. But when they did that, in that process, they would leave behind the poor, the uneducated, the weak, and the sick. And that was the beginning of the Samaritans. So the Samaritans, these people who were left behind when the wealthy people, the important people, the powerful people were taken out of Israel, they began to intermarry with other people groups in the region, which was like the one thing God was really clear, like, do not do this. This is really bad. And they did it anyway. Then after a period of time, some of the Jewish people were allowed to return back uh, to Israel again. And so they did things like rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the wall of the city of Jerusalem. The Samaritans weren't really excited about having them back. Because now they are unclean, so they're not able to worship in Jerusalem. And so as a result of that, they created a pseudo-Judaism. That's why the woman asked, where are we supposed to worship, in Jerusalem or here? Because they had their own form of religion that was pseudo-Judaism. So having said all of that, here's the point. By the time of the first century, during the time of Jesus, Jews hated Samaritans. 
They represented all that was wrong with the world. They wanted to have nothing to do with Samaritans. That's why they went around the area of Samaria when they were traveling from north to south in the region. But yet we see Jesus extending compassion and love to this group of people who represented in the mind of a Jewish person all that was wrong in the world. And it wasn't just that he was willing to talk with them. Did you notice what it said? It said that he spent two days with them. No Jewish person would ever do that. They didn't want to have anything to do with Samaritan people, but Jesus was willing to accept their hospitality and stay with them. And where at the beginning we read, many believe because of the testimony of the woman, at the end of the passage we read that they came to believe not just because of what she said, but because of what Jesus said and did for them. And again, as we read it, it's important for us to understand this. That their story is our story. We are the ones who represent all that is wrong in the world. But when we did that, Jesus extends his love and compassion to us. He loves us not based on what we did or what we would do, but in spite of who we were. There's one other thing I want you to notice about their assessment of Jesus. It comes at the very end of this passage. It says, Since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. This is highly important to understand. That Jesus is the Savior of the world. Because of what Jesus did when he ministered to those people, when he stayed with the people in that village, that Samaritan village, it is highly important because if Jesus never ministered to a Samaritan village, it would be really easy for us to think, well, Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the Jews. We can begin to think, well, God loves Jewish people because they're his chosen people. And today, what we would do, we would ignore a lot of Scripture. Sometimes we, people do this anyway, but we can begin to think, okay, I get it. God loves Israel. There is chosen people. God loves me because I'm in the church, his new chosen people. Again, we're ignoring a lot of stuff, but we can begin to do that. We think to ourselves, well, I get it. God loves me. That makes sense. I'm not really sure how God feels about other people who aren't like me, those who are outside the circle of the church. But the Samaritans believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world. Not just about us, but it also includes other people around us. And so that reality that Jesus is the Savior of the world and the significance of that should really rock us to the core and force us to ask ourselves this question, who are the Samaritans among us today? Who are those people that we might have a tendency to look at and view as being unlovable? And so I want you to think about that. Who are the Samaritans for you? People of a different race? And I hope not. People who hold a different political persuasion than you do? And I hope not. 
People are from a different religion. You have a different view of sexuality. When we could do nothing, Jesus reached down into our lives and extended love to us first. And what he's chosen to do with those of us who are his followers, he's chosen to work through us to reach the lonely and isolated, the hurting, the broken, those who are in the margins. He's chosen us to extend his love to them so that their lives can be changed as well. The love that God has for us is not based on what we did nor what we would do. He loves us in spite of who we were. He loved us first. It's highly significant for how we view our relationship with God because it is not based on performance. It's based on his grace and mercy that should transform us. And it should certainly influence the way that we view others around us who are different than us. They may see the world differently than we do because he wants to use us to extend his love to them so that their lives can be changed too. It's because he first loved.